Welcome to the Sword and Laser, episode number 157. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy is, New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. I guess it is, uh, if this episode releases at the time I expect it to, this should be New Year's Eve right now. So hopefully all of you are doing something fun and cool tonight and safe. And uh, I'm probably at safe. home. Because yeah, I don't do anything on New Year's ever. <laughs> That's what I am doing, too. Ever. I never go out on New Year's. Who knows? Maybe I am you know, incorrectly guessing what I'm going to be doing in the future and I'm having the time of my life right now, I but travel. I highly doubt it. So confusing. So confusing. But anyway, um, if you are joining us for the very first time, Sword and Laser is the science fiction and fantasy book club video show and podcast where we talk about the latest releases in the science fiction and fantasy world, discuss our book picks of the month, and of course, check out what you guys are talking about over on our Goodreads forums. Last week, we wrapped up A Natural History of Dragons, a memoir by Lady Trent, by Marie Brennan, and this week, we get to talk to Marie Brennan. Absolutely, so let's jump right into that interview. And joining us today is author of A Natural History of Dragons by Lady Trent, Marie Brennan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Marie is a former academic with a background in archaeology, anthropology, and folklore, which I would say she puts to amazing use in writing fantasy. Her first two novels were Doppelganger and Warrior and Witch. She also wrote a four-book series called Onyx Court and, of course, the first book in the Lady Trent series, A Natural History of Dragons. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, where she claims to spend her time practicing piano, studying karate, and playing a variety of role-playing games. But we secretly suspect she slips into alternate realities and studies dragons so which is true uh no comment (laughs) (laughs) so we've we've really enjoyed reading this book for the book club uh this past month um so so for those of us who weren't able to join us on the read-through can you tell us a little bit about the story of a natural history of dragons a memoir by lady trend which is actually by you Yes. Um, well, I mean, it, it pretty much is what it says on the tin. Uh, it is a pseudo-memoir of a lady in a very Victorian-type society who, uh, you know, she's writing as an old woman about what she did when she was much younger, traveling the world to study dragons, and she doesn't intend to get into trouble when she goes places, but it does seem to happen. Yeah, it does. It, 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 she doesn't, yeah, exactly. She doesn't go seeking it out. But it finds her pretty yeah. regularly, I would say. Yes. She has a very interesting life. Mm-hmm. And of course, I should warn listeners that we are, since this is, this is the end of the month, you have had the chance to read the book. Um, there will be some spoilers. So there I might be a couple spoilers. There so might be a few out. spoilers. Uh, some of the Goodreads questions go into that realm. Um, so yeah. Marie, don't feel bad about letting anything out because they, they have been enough. forewarned. Okay. There's the fair warning. Uh, now, Marie Brennan is a pseudonym, which works really well for you. Have you considered just abandoning the name Bryn Neuenschwander, no. if I'm even saying it right? Uh, yeah, no, you are saying it right. Um, no, I would never uh, give up my my legal name uh, just to have something easier. Um, you know, I didn't even change my name when I got married because, uh, well, I, I had not really thought about it growing up. And then I, there was a part of me that thought, well, I'm kind of used to having this long, unpronounceable last name that begins with N. And then I married a guy with a long, unpronounceable last name that begins with N. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, there was no improvement. And so I thought, you know, I'm, I'm used to being a Neuenschwander. I, I think I'll stay that way. Um, but no, Marie Brennan was a pen name. I knew when I was nine that I wanted to be a fantasy writer. And I think by the time I was 10, I had chosen my pen name, um, making it the only good idea I had when I was 10. Um, That's pretty impressive. How'd you come up with Marie Brennan? Uh, Marie is my middle name, and Brennan was Bryn N. Oh, okay. So I just rearranged my actual name. 
Oh, um, interesting. But, Very cool. Yeah, that, that has been the name of writer me since I was a child. Like, it had always been that was the name I was going to use. So, so it really is your name, just yeah. a little bit rearranged. Though. Yeah. Well, um, actually, when I was in graduate school and, and studying role-playing games, one of the things I was interested in is the way that playing games changes the way that you think about identity. And the idea that, like, identity shifts, right? You're not just one person. You You kind of change depending on what context you're in. And so, yeah, I mean, Marie Brennan is me. It's just one part of me. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a second. Cool. You went you went to grad school to study role-playing games? Yes, yes, I did. <laughs> that is super cool. How how do you even get into that? Like I didn't realize that was a course load that you could take. Well, it's not a course load. Um what you do is you take classes in anthropology and folklore and you very much confuse everyone around you. <laughs> but they did <laughs> actually give me a 5-year fellowship to do that, so they clearly thought what I was doing was interesting. Now, did you did you stick with that or or I thought you left to uh, pursue writing full-time? Yes. Um I finished my coursework right around the time that my first novel was published. And so writing went from, you know, hobby and hopeful eventual career to actual ongoing career. Um, And actually, about at the time where I really needed to be buckling down for qualifying exams and dissertation and so on, I had just started writing the Onyx Court books, which were kind of research intensive. And so I thought, I'm not sure I can do both these things at once. And writing's doing well enough for me that I don't know that I want to get an academic job and go through all the, the hassle of that You know, once I have my degree. So if I'm not going to get an academic job, other than bragging rights, what's the point of getting the PhD? And then a bunch of other things happened, like the company my husband was working for four went bankrupt. So we needed to find him a new job and moving would have made that, you know, was going to make that a lot easier. So we just kind of looked at it and went, you know, I think the better idea is to just leave grad school. But can you imagine how cool it would be at cons these days to say, I have a PhD in role-playing games? I, I do wish. Yeah, I, mean, I completed the coursework for a PhD. doesn't sound nearly as impressive, but yeah. <laughs> that's still pretty awesome. Are you, are you playing regularly? Do you get a chance to actually do any tabletop games or role-playing oh, games? Oh, yeah. Um, there's a game that actually my husband and I are running jointly uh, that we're playing every week and also another game that I play in every other week. A um, couple other like uh, live action games that I had been involved in, but one of them I've stepped out of and the other one ended up uh, ending. So don't have any LARPing at the moment, but soon. Well, you, you definitely, yeah, soon. I hope so. Um, Kind of have more limited LARPing opportunities here than I did when I was in grad school because there was actually a very big community for that where I was. Now, you definitely seem to have a lot of fun writing. I noticed on your live journal you chopped a character's hand off the other day. (laughs) Uh, We wouldn't dream you'd giggle so so gleefully about that. people <laughs> we now we of course we don't want you to spoil we wouldn't dare ask you to spoil we don't want you to tell us whose hand it was but did, was it difficult did you do it in one blow did you have to look away <laughs> um it it is in fact uh done in one blow um with a a kind of machete like blade so something that's designed for you know chopping through kind of hard stuff um and uh, I, I won't give away who does the cutting or or what uh you know whose hand yeah, is please. cut off but it's done for the person's own good I'll, I'll leave you with that. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, that is that is very curious. Done for their own good. It, it sounds to me like maybe a hundred and forty-eight hours kind of situation. <laughs> I I won't give the details. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm tempted to facts. start, you know, guessing like gangrene or something, but I, I don't even want you to. I don't even want you to tell me. I want to keep yeah. it a mystery. Yeah. Well, and, and the mean thing is, this is in the third book, which is the one I'm writing right now, and so you guys have to wait quite a while before sure, you find out what's up with that. Still, um, so you use your knowledge of anthropology and fo- folklore to great effect in your writing. So how how deep do you develop the myths and culture behind? 
into people like the Vistrani or, or any of the other cultures that we kind of, you know, come up in the book. Yeah, um, there's a little bit of a mix there because... Um it's been very amusing to me to see people guessing at what exactly Vistrana is. Mostly people say that it's Russia, and that's actually Bolskevo is based on Russia. Uh, Vistrana is actually Romanian. Um, there's a, a couple of little nods to that that are a little easier to spot, even if you don't know Romania, but mostly people don't know it, so it's not as obvious. Um, and there certainly are things in there, um, like a lot of the religious references that come up. Um, one thing that some people have caught and other people it's flown under the radar is that everybody in the book is Jewish. Um, and so a number of the things that get mentioned in a religious context are me swapping out some names on things from actual Jewish scripture. Mm, um, mm -hmm. But then uh, there's also things that I do make up, like the, the whole thing with Jagrit Mat, the um, you know, sort of demonic figure that is said to haunt those ruins. Um, you know, that is very much inspired by things I have read in folklore, but that's not a specifically Romanian thing. That's me saying, ooh, let's come up with something. That's really cool. You know, I have to say that that particular storyline, it had me going there for a second. I was wondering if you were going to go full fantasy. I mean, even beyond the dragons to actually yeah. have a, a mythical creature from their folklore come mm -hmm. into the story. I, you had me going there for, for a yeah. little bit. Well, and there are some things um, a little bit less in the first book, I think. But um, one of the, the things I find interesting is that the boundary between fantasy and reality isn't maybe as kind of strict as we tend to think of it, because we're always thinking about it, or most of us probably are thinking about it very much from a kind of modern, you know, secular, rationalist, Western perspective, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff in folklore that is magical thinking, magical belief that isn't out and out blatant fantasy, right? It's not, you know, a demon exactly, but people believe if you do X, then, you know, Y happens, that kind of thing. Um, and so uh, there is fantasy in the series in the, you know, to the extent that people hold beliefs, which we would say are fantastical, but it's kind of more integrated with life rather than it being wizards throwing fireballs. Sure. It's more like what people would call old wives tales type of stuff in some yeah. cases. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's superstitions. It's, you know, things like that of, um, well, the, the second book in particular, um, the setting that it takes place in, a lot of it is based on uh, West Africa and then the Congo. There's kind of two different regions there. And you have a very widespread belief uh, in a lot of African societies about witchcraft that it's not witchcraft as we kind of think of that word. Um, mm -hmm. the, I remember the example that brought, got brought up in one of my folklore classes that really stuck with me is, okay, someone is walking down a path and they get bitten by a snake. And the belief might be, well, you know, that's because of witchcraft. And uh, it's not that, you know, they say, oh, there wasn't actually a snake there. It's why was the snake there? It explains mm -hmm. causes, right? That it, it's, you know, the reason why you had this bad fortune is because of evil in the world and maybe somebody wishing you ill and that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, it, it's the same kind of thing where you might get a more sort of like Western Christian perspective saying, well, it's because of sin, right? You were sinful and therefore this bad thing happened to you. Um, and, you know, that is a, a like a magical and fantastical belief. It's something that science would say, okay, no, there's no connection there. But there's still, you know, causation and, and associations that are given to things that are, like I said, I think the boundary between fantasy and reality is kind of fuzzier when you look at it that way. It's like people saying Mercury is in retrograde. When, yeah, you know, exactly. Which, you know, my husband and I joke about that. I don't really believe in astrology, but sometimes we'll be like, eh, Mercury, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's clearly a bad time for these things. Well, so then that kind of leads me to the question of when do you decide what is something along those lines versus what is actually going to be fantastical in your story? 
I can't answer that one very clearly because it actually sort of impinges on stuff that will happen later in the oh, series. Okay. okay. I will say there are, are definitely things, uh, well, I mean, some of it just with the presence of dragons, period, right? I I do make up some kind of pseudoscientific things about how do dragons actually work, but when you get down to it, they don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so there is some fantasy in there. Um, I've spent probably more time than I should thinking about uh, underpinnings there in ways that end up not making it into the story because some of the stuff that has gone through my head is, well, maybe Isabella's world has a higher uh, you know, percentage of oxygen in their atmosphere than we do, which would make it easier to fly. Mm-hmm. Except that's there's no way to put that in the text, you know? Sure. Isabella's not going to be quoting the oxygen percentage of the atmosphere at you. There's no reason for her to do it because it's only interesting in comparison to our world, which she doesn't have. <laughs> which made me think, in reading Natural History of Dragons, that this could literally be called science fiction, because yeah. of the natural history part of this. How much natural history do you have to bone up on to <laughs> to, to, to fill this out? Uh, it's been kind of intermittent because I I know that I could very easily fall so far down that hole I would never climb back out again. <laughs> um, I, I do have a climatology textbook sitting on my shelf so that when I send her to a particular region, I can say, okay – I at least have a general sense of why the environment is the way that it is, you know, so that I can put it in the right part of the world. You don't end up with, you know, weird rectangular mountains a la Mordor. Um, (laughs) You don't end up with things going, why is there a desert there? There should be lots of rain. And I know most readers won't get that, but I want it to be something where, because my, my heroine is a scientist, if she's going to be scientifically studying things, it needs to hang together at least at a first glance. Um, so I have done a, some amount of reading. Um, there's dragons actually in the second book that were very much inspired by cheetahs. So I went and you know read up on cheetahs a little bit and said, okay, Ooh. how do they operate? So that I can I borrow that for uh, for these creatures. Um, reading a lot of random little things about dinosaurs because they make an interesting model as well. Sure, I can see that. Um, so Did yeah, you see the the study by Dr. Dan Lunt of Bristol University uh, where he created a climate model for Middle Earth? I glanced at that. I didn't have time. It's really read it interesting. Full. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking of that when I commented on Mordor. So. Uh-huh. I wondered if, if you'd saw that. <laughs> yeah. And, well, I, just, I, I don't think he covered the geology of why are the mountains a rectangle? <laughs> yeah, I don't think he got <laughs> that. That one's a little further. peculiar. Yeah. And uh, going into that world a little bit further, what have you seen uh, the Desolation of Smog yet? Not yet. No, I've been too busy, actually, since it opened. I'm hoping um, we're flying to Boston for Christmas uh, tomorrow, actually. Oh, and so I- I'm hoping that while we're there, we can take some time to do that if you were leaving one day uh this is in in case people don't know we are recording this episode before christmas like way before oh, yes. christmas um but i am flying out on the the day after you then ah. uh so we'll be passing but no not not technically passing i'll be like yeah. a shadow of you chasing in the past. yeah i'm chasing you yeah. <laughs> that's creepy um so we have a few questions from our goodreads audience and the first mm-hmm. one comes from nancy and now she's going back to your other series the onyx yeah. court um she wants to know uh she'd love to know if you're planning on writing any more books in the onyx court series um either full-length novels or standalone novellas like deeds of men yeah um well i've got a couple of short stories that are out there which are also connected to the onyx court there's one I guess it's technically a novelette by length called And Blow Them at the Moon, um, which is, of course, a quote from Shakespeare. Uh, that one was published in Beneath Ceaseless Skies. And then there's another one, which is only kind of tangentially an Onyx Court story. Um, there was a disaster relief fundraiser, I think it might have been for the the Haitian earthquake uh, some years ago, where what I auctioned off was, name a time period of English history and like a, a particular event or person, and I will write an Onyx Court story about that. Oh, cool. And somebody asked about the princes in the tower and the whole question of, you know, did Richard the third murder them etc 
so I wrote a story called Two Pretenders, which um, it actually takes place before the Onyx Court as such existed. And so it doesn't make any direct reference to those things. But it is a story about fairies in English history. So it's kind of an Onyx Court story. Um, I do have a list of a, a bunch of other things I would like to write that take place between the novels. I have one uh, about Ada Lovelace, actually, that there's oh, a draft of it cool. done. I just haven't revised it yet. Um, and a number of others that I would like to do in between the books. Um I may continue the novels at some point. I knew after writing with Fate Conspire that I needed a break. Um, and that was actually sort of a very natural break point to have. Um, but I may at some point go back and write a 20th century book and then a modern day one to kind of continue the, the time lapsing of the series up to the present oh, day. Fantastic. Yeah, I'd love to see that. Uh, that leads us a little bit into to what Rob was saying. He asks uh, why you make the decision to create a new world for a natural history of dragons <laughs> rather than choosing to just write an alternate history, maybe like Strange and Norel. Yeah. Uh, and he also follows that up with, as a writer, what do you gain and what do you lose by making that choice? Yeah. Um, it is true that some of it was I had just been writing historical fantasy. I wanted to do something different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but actually, the first parts of a natural history of dragons were written before I did the Onyx Court books because I sort of got this idea. I wrote a chunk of it and then I shelved it for a while. Um, and I think even then I was intending to do it as a secondary world. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, one of them, and this, this is really more sort of a, a matter of how my brain works and how some readers' brains work, uh, but really it was because of me. Um, I've seen this comment for like Naomi Novik's Temeraire books mm -hmm. where people say, well, if you had dragons in harness and you were using them for warfare and communication and all these things, history would be more different right? You wouldn't be getting the Napoleonic Wars happening in more or less the same way they did in real history. And I'm totally fine with that as a reader. I am willing to buy in on the, we are plugging dragons into the Napoleonic Wars and not worrying about the effect they would have had on the previous 2,000 years. Um, but I know that as a writer, if I tried to put things like dragons in, I would be asking myself, okay, so what does that change? And then in particular, there's certain things about... Um, the, the time period. The 19th century obviously had a lot of problems with racism, classism, sexism. You had all the, you know, colonialism going on. And I knew that I wanted to not ignore those things, but also not make them quite as severe as they were in reality. Um, this especially comes out more in uh, the second book and later ones as Isabella continues to travel. There is colonialism going on, but it's not quite as one-sided in the sense of it being, you know, Europe versus the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. um, there are colonial powers elsewhere that are also doing land grabs and things like that. And so I knew if I was trying to write in real history, in particular because of the Onyx Core books when I came back to this, um, those books, I was doing so much research because I wanted them to be secret history, the kind of thing where the elements I was adding were kind of slipping into the cracks between things, but that where I referred to real stuff, it was as accurate as I could make it. And because of that, if I tried to do something like saying, okay, well, you know, Japan becomes a colonial power, you know, 100 years earlier than they do, then my brain would start going, okay, why? You know, what, what, what's different in their past? Like, what factors do I have to change in order, you know, if I want to have the new world not end up in the situation it did in reality? Well, okay, what do I have to do about, they would probably need better disease resistance. So that would mean there would have had to be like contact more than just the Greenland colony, etc. You know, going through all these things, and I would end up tying myself in knots about justifying the changes that I made. Um, 
So by making it a secondary world, I have the freedom both to change that stuff and not worry as much about why. Um, you know, I can just say they had like different natural resources or the history was different and we're not going to get into that. It just is. Yeah. Um, and also the freedom to, you know, make stuff up kind of wholesale. Um, I very much am using real, uh, real parts of the world, real cultures and, and sometimes real bits of history as inspiration. But if I was writing about specific real groups of people – then when I do things like saying, okay, I want you to have this kind of like folklore and these cultural traditions about dragons, well, now I'm ascribing stuff to those people that they don't really have. And especially that gets more kind of problematic as Isabella goes to certain parts of the world. Like I said, the second book, you know, taking place in a couple of sort of African-based areas. You know, I'm less comfortable with kind of making up traditions for those people and then saying, you know, I'm going to pretend that this is real. Mm -hmm. Um, So setting it in a a secondary world, I'm able to make up things when I have a cool idea and go, gee, wouldn't it be neat if they had this without it being something I'm saying about real people? That's interesting that you bring up um, the Temer novels and His Majesty's Dragon, uh, which was actually our alt pick for this month Mm -hmm. um, for those who couldn't get their hands on your book. Um, I I found myself having trouble with some of the alt history in, in that series only because I felt like it kind of took me out of the story a little bit because I started trying to figure out what was real and historical versus what she had rewritten to work within the dragon setting. Um, So I would be like, well, okay, this battle, how did this battle actually turn out? What was the, (laughs) what was the impetus for this decision? Like in actual history. And, you know, so it, it blurred the lines a little bit in a way that made me more confused and wanting to go off on tangents rather than kind of staying immersed in the story. Not to say that I don't love that series because I do. Um, but that was something I definitely noticed while I was reading. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a few books behind on it, so I haven't read the more recent ones. But I know uh, when I was reading the first few books, um, I was totally willing to just be like, "Wee, let's go along with it. I'm fine with that. But not everybody is. And it really, more than anything, was as a writer, I knew that I would get caught up on those questions. Mm-hmm. Makes me think there's a, there's a market out there, however small, for some of those programmers that did Age of Empires and Civilization to create some <laughs> kind of simulator for authors to be able to like, okay, I just want to put dragons in. What happens yeah. then? Well, <laughs> yeah, what I, happens? It's funny you should mention that because um, a game that I've played a little and my husband has played somewhat more, uh, Crusader Kings 2, uh-huh. which is a great simulator of kind of medieval Europe. Um, it starts off with like you can play real historical people at real historical points in time, but then it diverges based on what you do. Um And it's a very great simulator because it has, you know, the armies and the conquering territory and so on, but it models a lot more of the social side as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's things like you can have your spy master fabricate a claim to a particular territory, and then you can, like, assassinate people or marry your children off to relevant people so that your descendants will inherit that particular territory as part of their lands. Um, Because you're basically playing the dynasty. You're not playing one person. You're playing your lineage uh, throughout time. Um, and it's funny because it's so like, uh, you know, very finely observed things about medieval politics and marriage alliances and all those kinds of things and diplomacy and stewardship of your lands. Cause you can do things to improve agriculture and such. And then they made an expansion called sort of Islam, which, uh, covers the middle East, um, you know, sort of at the, the height of, um, I'm going to show that I don't know my history that well, but yeah, the caliphate and so on. Um, And so they have some different mechanics and they're reflecting the way that like Ottoman society and such were, were working with those things. And then they had another expansion called the sunset invasion, which is the Aztecs invade. And you just look at it and go, what? Yeah. (laughs) What now? 
because so much of it is like so very like well modeled. They have things about succession laws. Like I didn't know what gavel kind succession was until I started playing this game, and all of these things that are very based in history. And then it's and then the Aztecs invade, and you go, all right. At this point, you're just like having me on. <laughs> hey, they they deserve to do some of the invading. I'm oh yeah, no, and yeah. I think it's hilarious. Actually, Mesoamerica is one of the places I have kind of a, a random interest in, and so I think that's you know fantastic. But for something that had been so historical in nature, to just take this like screaming turn into alternate history is really funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's like there was a whole other simulation running outside of the other games that you didn't know about. Exactly. Yeah, they've been playing Sunset Invasion for a couple of years, right. and the results of that are now attacking you. Right, right. <laughs> nice. Um, our next question comes from Michelle, and she wants to know: Are we going to find out what exactly sparkling? are um and are they important in some way i i don't know about the dragons but i really i'd really like a sparkling a live one you know not not pickled <laughs> yeah um the sparklings will come up yeah um it amuses me how many people have responded to the first book saying that they really want more of the kind of scientific nerdery um you know people saying that they they would like me to write the various scientific works that isabella refers to <laughs> <laughs> I actually I, wanted to know if those existed. I actually <laughs> thought maybe these were books you had written earlier. Yeah, and no. I was supposed to go look back on them. I that no. did cross my mind in reading. Um, no, they they do not actually exist. Um, but <clears throat> there are some things that do come up as the series goes along. Um, Isabella starts thinking more about taxonomy, which um, you know, for those of you who want more scientific nerdery, it, it's going to be there. Um, <clears throat> she starts thinking about it more in the second book, and uh, in fact, part of what's going on in the third book is her trying to gather the information she needs to propose a new theory of this kind of thing. So yes, there will be more about sparklings and what exactly is up with them. <clears throat> I Winkler uh, is several chapters into the book and greatly enjoying the world. The description of how the lead character became interested in the natural world was wonderful. Uh, PBS had a show recreating the Darwin household and showed how the gentleman naturalist developed. It sounded like your protagonist grew up in this world. Was this the background for the story or did you base it on something else? Yeah, um, you know, certainly Darwin is is one of the obvious inspirations for the character. Um, the um, the the environment that she's operating in, actually, they already do have a theory of evolution, so that's not what Isabella is thinking up. Um, but uh, certainly Darwin was an inspiration. Um, you know, gentleman naturalists, and really the the sort of gentleman scholar thing overall. Um, in particular, I. I maybe um, putting a character into the later books who is my excuse to geek out about archaeology. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, in general, the notion of that person who, you know, has sufficient wealth and leisure that they can engage with these kinds of things, because it's a lot easier to do when you have, you know, money to spare and don't have to work for a living. Gotcha. And now uh, we are, we are, oh, sorry, did you have more to say? Oh, I was just going to say, though, I, I do actually oddly given that I, I kind of hate economics as a field of study I had a bad experience with it in high school I do actually do a fair bit as it goes along with Isabella having to worry about money because it turns out being a naturalist is expensive <laughs> yeah I can't imagine it's cheap especially at that time of technology right I yeah mean, yeah well and, and the travel and all that kind yeah, of stuff yeah yeah I have to tell you though, I, the, the I think probably my favorite scene in the entire book uh, was the proposal scene and how <laughs> she reacted. And I just I was actually out jogging, listening to the audiobook with a big goofy smile on my face through that entire scene. It was fabulous. Yeah, I have to say I actually I listened to the podcast you guys did where you you talked about the book a little bit, and I got a big goofy grin that that was your favorite part of the book, and specifically that it was your favorite part. You know, not Veronica's, but yours because uh -huh. Tom's you know, a big softy. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's 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 the gender stuff, you know. I I can't right. help but think about it. Um, yeah, I had a lot of fun with writing that because I can't write 
kind of conventional romance very well. <laughs> so that one worked better. <laughs> Actually, that leads us into our next question uh, quite nicely. Uh, Terp Kristen wants to know, um, can you elaborate on why you had Lady Trent's relationship with her husband be so, well, odd? I mean, she's an odd lady for, for the time, but her relationship with her husband at times seems antagonistic, at times uber lovey-dovey, and sometimes it seems like they're mostly colleagues, which I guess in, in a sense they are. It seems obvious that they love each other, but where other parts of Lady Trent's personality fit well within the character of a young Victorian lady, this one seemed a bit out of her time. Yeah, I mean, it's something... Uh, I, I don't see it as being out of the time because a lot of the things that look odd about their relationship to me come about from the fact that a lot of the relationship building that we're accustomed to doing before marriage, they had to do after marriage because, you know, it's the Victorian period. And so they kind of knew each other. You know, they were acquaintances and they, they got along. Um and then they got married, and then they had to work out the rest of it after that. Um, I think probably my guess for the the antagonistic part of it is that there is one point in the story where they disagree about something rather badly. Um, and it's because, you know, um, well, I guess you said I can talk spoilers, mm -hmm. so I don't have to talk around this. Um, you know, you have the fact that they're still trying to figure out how to deal with each other when Isabella gets pregnant and has a miscarriage. And, you know, that's a really kind of traumatic emotional thing for both of them. And they don't deal with it all that well in the immediate aftermath. Um, so it takes them some time to kind of, you know, get past that. And then when Isabella says, I want to go on this expedition and Jacob reacts very badly to it, you know, that is, to me, the expectations of the period mm -hmm. that what she's asking for is kind of outrageous and Jacob much more than her, than Isabella initially has this response of that's just not possible right and he feels kind of like she is trying to um you know manipulate him a bit and making it happen um <clears throat> so yeah he does react kind of badly um but for reasons that I at least think you know I, I see where he's coming from that it's well there are going to be social consequences to this right, and right. Isabella actually isn't the kind of woman who just goes, oh, tra-la-la, I don't care about that, you know. Um, she does actually acknowledge that those are a problem, and she decides to do it anyway. Um, but there are repercussions, and she doesn't get to just sort of skip out on them. And there's repercussions for Jacob, too, that, you know, he, it's going to reflect on him as well as on her if this happens. But he does come around. Um, and I think they do have a lot of affection for one another, um, that is built on a foundation of kind of being more colleagues. Um, and so that aspect of them really loving one another is sort of growing over time throughout the book. You know, Isabella struck me as a, a similar character to a lot of characters that I read in Victorian novels. I didn't think she was that different uh, than, than, say, a Bronte character mm -hmm. could be. Maybe not the ones that people are most familiar with or the most famous. Did you steep yourself in that kind of literature to get that voice, or how, how were you able to, to channel that? Uh, it was actually less the literature. Um, I did kind of speed read some Victorian literature when I was mm -hmm. working on With Fate Conspire, which is the Victorian period Onyx Court book. Um, but that was because I was trying to find a title. Uh, the titles <laughs> for all of those books are quotations from like literature of the period and I had the worst time finding a title for that one um, but I can't even really say that I was reading those books because after a while it was I'm just going through looking for anything that can be a title I'm not even paying attention to the story <laughs> um, but I have read some Victorian literature um, a lot of the inspiration for Isabella is though less the, the literature literary characters and more actual historical figures um, because you did have uh, these ladies in the 18th and 19th century who were engaging in scientific and scholarly work you had ladies who were traveling the world and, and writing about it. Um, 
you actually had a lot more of that in the 18th century than in the 19th because the the blue stocking society was originally this sort of uh, salon in the sense of you know people would come and talk about things. Um, it didn't become a pejorative term until the 19th century, um, and so. Yeah, I mean, there are people like Lady uh, Mary Wortley Montague. She went to uh, Turkey with her husband because he was an ambassador. So she wrote about what uh, you know she saw there. Uh, you had Elizabeth Carter was a a um, she spoke like nine languages, I think it was, including Arabic. She translated um, one of the Greek philosophers, and it was the standard translation for like into the twentieth century. Wow. Um, and you had, you know, women who were working as, you can't see me making the little finger quotes around it, but assistants to their husbands on the scientific work that their husbands were doing. Um, so a lot of things like that. Um, one, I actually uh, didn't, well, I, <laughs> there's a woman named Isabella Bird. My character is not named after her because I didn't know about her until after I started this. But um, for the first, like, half page of me writing this book, Isabella was named Victoria, and I thought, that just doesn't seem right. And then she became mm -hmm. Isabella. Isabella Bird was a woman um, who, she went to Japan and wrote a book about it. She climbed around in the Rocky Mountains. She went to Hawaii. She went, like, all over the world and wrote these sort of travelogues. Um, and then another one, um, uh, Mary uh, Kingsley. Um, sorry, I think her name is longer than that, and I'm trying to find the book on my shelf now. Hyphenated, maybe? Or something. Yeah, it was like Mary H. Kingsley. I don't remember what the H was for. Um, who went to uh, West Africa to study um, like beliefs about fetish in the sense of like, you know, superstitions and such. Mm -hmm. um, and so her writing, actually, I, I started reading Travels in West Africa that she wrote um, while I was working on The Tropic of Serpents. And I was reading through this going, my God, like, Everything outrageous that I do in these books, it's nothing compared to what she actually did. <laughs> like, she is even more sort of over the top seeming than than Isabella is. is so those a, were the kind of people. <laughs> uh, Mary Henrietta. Kingsley. Yes, Henrietta. Thank you. I did a quick Google for you. Yes. Nice thank Google you. foo. Well thank done. you. Um, so when can we expect the next book in the series to come out? Uh, Tropic of Serpents is going to be out um, in the U.S. It will be March of next year. Um, and then in the U.K., uh, A Natural History of Dragons is coming out in, I think, February. And then Tropic of Serpents will be in, like, June or something. So they're trying to catch up with, uh, with the U.S. schedule. Oh, yeah, that's pretty close together. Yeah, yeah. I think the idea is that they'll do Tropic of Serpents in June, and then by the time the third book comes out, they'll be publishing more or less simultaneously. Simultaneously. Good. I hate I hate it when they have to, and I know sometimes it's unavoidable for whatever reason, but I hate it when they have to stagger those releases. Yeah, yeah. There's like weird logistics that happen yeah. behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> and where can everyone follow your work online? Uh, my website is swantower.com. Uh, no hyphen or anything like that in it. Um, and that has links to you know a whole lot of stuff, including um, I'm on LiveJournal at swan-tower.livejournal.com. Yes, it's inconvenient that they don't match. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, so website. Um, I'm also on Twitter. I think that one's swan underscore tower because I'm really not consistent. <laughs> <laughs> they don't allow you to be consistent sometimes. They're like, yeah. no, you can't use that character. This exactly. name is already taken. So I know, I definitely know how that goes. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really enjoyed the book and it was so great to get a chance to chat with you about the characters. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a really fun read. Yeah, thank you absolutely lovely. I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. That was fantastic. That was so great to have her on the show. So fun to talk to her. Thank you so much, Marie. Absolutely. And uh, if you guys, Brent, Marie, Brennan. Or Bryn. Bryn. Oh, you're secretly calling her by her, by her given name. <laughs> you're funny. 
Um, no, but she was she was awesome to have, and, yeah, and it was really I loved good. hearing her insights about it. It was it was fantastic. Um, but hey, if you guys want to get in touch with us, our email address is feedback at swordandlaser.com. Our website is swordandlaser.com, and we are on the Boing Boing Podcast Network. And if you want to check out a recent episode over there at uh, boingboing.net/slash/category/slash/podcast, um, I recommend checking out the Boars Gore and Swords podcast. Got swords. You're going to love it. Which is, I think if you guys like this show, you will also appreciate this show as well. Um, They are going through uh, the Storm of Swords right now. They they read a lot of, I mean, it's mostly based on on they're they're breaking down a Game of Thrones and they're breaking down, I mean, the TV show and uh, the book series as well, Song of Ice and Fire. Um, So all that intersection, foul language, it's definitely not safe (laughs) for work, um, but all that, that great intersection of of where the TV show meets the, the book series and what they think about all of that. Go, do, enjoy, find. We'll see you in the new year. Uh, Corey, yeah, I guess that is true. We will see you guys over in uh, 2014. Woo! 2014, that is accurate, right? Yeah, just 2014. Okay. <laughs> yes, that is correct. We'll see you guys next year. <laughs> Bye.